Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 12. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is the word of God. If you joined us uh, last week, uh, we said for the last, uh, for the next two weeks, that I'll be sharing texts, almost kind of going freestyle, but I'm going to be sharing texts that reflect my own personal struggle with faith and growth in Jesus Christ. See, for the past years, for years, I've struggled with the question, how does change actually happen? How does the gospel actually move us and shape us and transform our lives, biblically, personally, and a big area in my life personally is in an area of anxieties, especially the last, what, five to eight years, Uh, definitely since Metro's been planted, and even over the last five years especially, fear has been an undercurrent uh, or an undercurrent theme in my life. How does the reality of the gospel address our fears? How does the reality of the gospel address our anxieties? I'm going to share with you at least how I've seen the word just open up and, and shape and change me. How did the Apostle Paul, the author of this text that we just read together, how did the Apostle Paul handle his troubles? How did he handle his suffering and yet still serve to build Christ's church? We're going to look at four very quick things today. One, why we need the peace of God. Two, what is the peace of God? Three, how do you practice the peace of God? How do you apply it? And lastly then, how do you get it? Why do we need it? What is it? How do you apply it? How do you get it? Now, the first is, why do we need the peace of God? And I'm going to give you a little bit of context first as, we, as I answer that question. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing Philippians, he's in prison. He's not writing as a free man. He's in prison. He's actually chained to a praetorian guard. They are an elite, influential. They're not just your everyday security guard uh, in the Roman Empire. They are the elite. They are very influential figures. And here, the Apostle Paul is chained on his own dime in a room in Rome to this guard. Guards taking shifts on a regular basis. He's in Rome, which means that he's suffering. He's got trouble. He's, he's in isolation. He's separated from his people. It's, and yet this book is an amazing product of his 
process of working out his salvation in the context of this isolation and separation and suffering. It's the last of his amazing books, letters to the church, which is called the the book to the Philippians, the epistle to the Philippians. And the book of Philippians is really Paul's treatise. It's Paul's treatise on joy. You can kind of take a subset of that and say it's kind of a treatise on fellowship. But it's really Paul's treatise on joy. Chapter 1, he shares about joy in suffering. Chapter 2, he talks about this joy in fellowship as a body. Chapter 3, he starts to say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. So his joy is in Christ beyond all the other things that he had taken joy in in his past. And he makes a long, long list, almost like a spiritual resume. And yet he says, in conclusion, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And now we get to chapter 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. He's almost echoing what he says in chapter 1 because he's suffering in chapter 1. And he says, I will rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. Now, why do we need the peace of God? Because Paul is demonstrating poise, an otherworldly poise. Paul is demonstrating a very unnatural, a supernatural calmness. He's able to see in the valley, in the suffering, in the trouble, a wisdom that enables him to endure, a wisdom that enables him to endure persecution, but also imprisonment, suffering, trouble. It's the last thing that you would expect. It's the last thing that anyone would expect. Somebody to demonstrate in the context in their demise. Why do we need the peace of God? Because verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. In other words, we are anxious about everything. In verse 7, he says, by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, the Greek word there uh, uh, connotes a reason, your rationale. In other words, what he's saying is there are things that we suffer in our lives that go beyond our ability to understand its purpose or its meaning. The ra- we can't rationalize it. We are overwhelmed, essentially. And so not only are we anxious about everything, we are overwhelmed. We are swept away it's because our, our own reason, our own sense of reason cannot justify its meaning. Verse 7, he says, let the peace of God guard your hearts and minds and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, the reason why we need the peace of God is because we are distracted. We are distracted by everything. And so we lack poise. Our hearts are distracted. Our minds are distracted. And we left unprotected, unguarded. We get swept away in our anxieties. In other words, we are overwhelmed. We are overwhelmed in our workplace. We are overwhelmed in our, in our family, in our family love, just trying to keep things together. We are overwhelmed in our relationships, whether you are a single person looking for a relationship or just your regular friendships. Everyone's got some set of friends. We are overwhelmed in our relationships. We are overwhelmed just by the frailty of our own bodies, the fragility of our own bodies, the fragility of our egos, the fragility of our confidence. And so we're constantly overwhelmed. We have every reason to be anxious, in a sense. 
We are alone and as broken people, broken by sin and just in a flawed world and with flawed bodies, our lives are just extremely difficult to a degree that we cannot get it together. We cannot control the circumstances around us. We cannot even control our own bodies. Suffering is too difficult. There's sickness. There's isolation. There's relational tension. There's a grander societal tension that exists and pervades through our society today. We see political tensions. We see racial tensions. There's isolation and aloneness on one hand and so much tension on the other hand. We live in a fragmented culture which then feeds back into greater isolation and separation. And of course, with all the things that we suffer on a day-to-day basis, whether it's in the workplace, at home, just around our nation, it's as if life is out to get you. You know, one of my favorite movies is No Country for Old Men. It's, it's based on a book written by Cormac McCarthy. Great book. And what you see as a conclusion, it was Cormac, the author's theme of the book. It, it won, I think, Best Picture that year when it came out. In No Country for Old Men, the blessings that you experience, you come across. You happen to find. You happen to find a briefcase full of money. But trouble and death and the antagonist of the movie, who is just relentless, is dressed in black. He represents death, will always come after you and will catch you and will find you. How are we distracted? We are distracted. All Our minds are always looking for an escape from reality. That is the way we try to deal with our suffering. That's the way we try to deal with uncertainty. It's the way we deal with our anxieties. We want to escape. We try to kind of block it out of our minds. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. And we find many, many diversions and ways in which we can escape. But our hearts are also diverted. It's because our hearts are diverted. Our hearts desire things. Our hearts constantly are one. Our hearts are believing things. There are core values and beliefs that are just coming out from the heart, desiring things. And it shapes the way you see the world. It shapes your wants, shapes your desires. Our hearts are constantly wandering and distracted by other things that captivate us. The beauty of things, the beauty of the world, the beauty of, it's not just the aesthetics. It's what we believe those things can get us. It's what we believe those things can say about us. And so we're constantly wandering and looking for beautiful things in our lives that we can acquire. Our hearts are always wandering, and it's constant. It's constant. That's why we need peace. We're always anxious. We It goes, our our suffering is beyond our rationale and our reason. We need something that's going to guard our hearts and minds because our hearts and minds are always, always diverted and distracted. Well, the second point is, what is the peace of God then? What is the peace of God? Instantly, we think that the peace of God is a removal from suffering because most of our lives, what we try to do is try to avert suffering. And Paul doesn't necessarily advocate Moving towards suffering. He doesn't say, look for it. It's going to find you. You're going to encounter suffering in your life. And as a Christian, over and over, Jesus Christ himself, as well as the Apostle Paul says, suffering will find you. Persecution will find you all the more if you are a believer of Jesus. So it's not necessarily a virtue to look for suffering. But we believe, we spend much of our life trying to avert suffering or even think about suffering in our lives. And... As a result, we think that peace 
is an absence of suffering. But it can't be. You know why? Because Paul's suffering. Paul, in writing this book, is suffering. And yet he says, he has poise. Jesus Christ himself suffered. The greatest person to ever walk the earth. The most holy, most perfect man to ever walk the earth. And yet he suffered tremendously. And he predicted the suffering. Which means he chose the suffering. But Paul says in verse 11, I've learned the secret to being content in any circumstance, whatever the circumstance. In verse 12, he says, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. He has learned, which means it's something he has acquired. It's not something he was born with. He's not saying it's because I'm stronger. It's not because my upbringing has, has led me in this direction. He's saying, I have learned. It has been taught to me. I have acquired the secret of contentment. The peace of God is not the absence of suffering, but verse 5, what does he say? He says, rejoice, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. God is present. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, reach to God, connect with God with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what? Verse 7, the peace of God, which transcends your reason, which transcends your rationale, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, what he's saying here is that peace is not the absence of suffering, but the presence of God. The peace of God that transcends all understanding, all reason, will guard your hearts and minds. The peace, peace is not the absence of suffering, it's the presence of God. In other words, we are alone, but in your aloneness, in your fear, and fear can be crippling, it can be overwhelming, you need something that's going to overwhelm the fear. It's, you don't get peace just by blocking out fear. You don't get peace by trying to run away from these things because it will find you. Suffering is going to find you. It is, it is common. To, it is universal to everyone. You need something that's going to overwhelm the presence of fear. And Paul says the secret is the presence of God. The peace of God will guard you, he says. In verse 7, that phrase... To guard you is more than just to protect your hearts and minds. In verse 7, what he's saying is it's like an army surrounding you. Protecting. It was a military word. An army surrounding you and protecting you, forming a barricade, a barrier, so that you have nothing to fear. You are completely covered. You can sleep at night, he says. The peace of God surrounds your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, forms this incredible seal over your heart and mind in Jesus with reminders of the gospel, who Jesus is in the midst of turbulence and chaos. He says, Jesus Christ is king. It reminds you in the midst of crippling guilt and the fear of just this, just this desire for approval and the fear of not getting it, the fear of disapproval, he says, Jesus Christ died for you. There is your validation. You're never alone. You're always protected. What is it? The peace of God guards your hearts and minds from the distractions of your life. And the distractions of your life are immense, but the peace of God is even greater to avert, to stave off, to guard you from the fears that come 
in the midst of all the distractions of life. Third point is, how do you practice it? And Paul goes into some detail here because you apply it in several dimensions. He says, may the peace of God guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Number one, the presence of God, how you apply it is to apply the presence of God by dwelling, letting him dwell in your thoughts and in your mind. In verse eight, Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, think about these things. In other words, Paul says, dwell on truth. Dwell on truth. Dwell on the real reality. Dwell on what is known to be good. That's what is honorable, what is noble. He says, dwell on what is truly right, what is truly just. He's talking about truth. We use the word doctrine like an ugly word today, but he's saying the only thing that can really, really address your fear is reality. He says, cling to the reality, cling to the truth that is in the word, God's word, God's voice, God's speaking, God's law. Meditate on it. Dwell on it. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water, that is rooted, that is deeply rooted by streams of water in a way that refreshes it and nourishes it and nurtures it and gives it life. That's what, he's, that's what the psalmist says. Meditate and dwell on the presence of God through his word. Let the word of God sit with you. Chew on his word. Ponder on his word. Let it sink in deep. Suck out the juices and the marrow of his word. Reason, let, in other words, he, you know, we see, a lot of, uh, we see a lot of people, a lot of preachers today say, kind of leave your mind at the door and experience and feel the presence of God in your life. But this goes beyond feeling. This goes beyond emotions. Paul says actually the opposite of that. He doesn't say, I want you to just feel the presence of God like in Star Wars, the force. He says, I want you to think. I want you to reason the truth and the reality of God in the midst of your visible realities that are driving you to fear. Let the real truth sink in. The truth about God's kingliness. The truth about Christ's kingship. The truth of God's kingdom. Let it overwhelm your fear and your desires. That's what he says. Let it speak into your reality. Reason the truth into your life. Now, verse nine, by the way, notice he says, I want you to, whatever you have learned or received, he kind of he dovetails, he says, I want you to think about these things, whatever is noble, whatever is true, what is, whatever is right. Think about these things, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. All those words are cognitive words. They're words that require thinking, to learn, to receive, to hear, to see, to put into practice. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. Take the word of God in a way that it doesn't just sit there because if you plant it in deep, let it drive you, let it shape you. And notice, it's, it, you can't ignore in verse 7, he says, whatever you've learned from me, received from me, heard from me. It takes community sometimes to massage the reality and the truths of the gospel in the word of God 
in our lives. We all need community. We need friends that are going to help us understand and think and reason things out in the midst of chaos and confusion and fear. Sometimes we have a perfect, we have a, a view of reality and it's overwhelming and to us it is so real. That's why fear is so powerful because it seems real, but reality is always, I mean, fear always has to look bigger than the reality in order to overwhelm you. We need community to be able to sit, come alongside us. You know, a few years ago, I was so overwhelmed in my own fears, my own anxieties, about just things going on in life in the church. And it was my wife and my closest friends who were able to reason scripture into just my sinful, fearful, cowardly heart. To be able to speak into that and reason who God is, who Christ is, who I am in Christ. Reminders of the gospel in a way that give life. They didn't use ego-boosting language. They didn't use flattery. They used truth. They used doctrine, real reality. The second thing that we can do to practice the presence of God in our lives. In verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Prayer. We pray. Verse 6, we pray with thanksgiving. Paul says something kind of unusual. Normally, you ask for something from somebody. Once they fulfill what you request, you say thank you. Paul says, I want you to ask, and I want you to ask and thank, thankfully ask. As if you received everything you need. What he's saying is don't wait until the result. Don't wait until you've received what you've asked for. God is going to give you in accordance with his wisdom. Because remember, you're in the valley. That's why you're asking. God is sitting on a mountaintop. And he sees the entire journey. And he knows exactly what you need. And he hears your request. And he responds. And if you trust him. He says, let the truth of God lead you to trust in the Lord that he knows what is best in your request as you ask. So ask thankfully. In other words, go to God for God. Don't just go to God for things. Go to God for more of God. Don't go to God for more things to get you out of trouble, to get you out of the mess to avert the mess, to run away from trouble. So we practice it through the word of God and we practice it through prayer, demonstrating that God is near and trusting his provision and protection over our hearts and our minds because our hearts and our minds are constantly distracted and so we need the peace of God. We know that the peace of God is not an absence of suffering, but the presence of God And so we practice it. How do you get it? In verse 8, Paul continues. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, those are thought things. Those are thinking things. But then he goes on and he moves from the cognitive. He moves from the mind. And he says, because the peace of God is going to guard your heart and your mind. Whatever the mind is, he says, now he moves into whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. He starts to move into beauty. 
he goes from the mind and then he leads and progresses into the heart. He says, whatever is admirable, lovely, pure, I want you to dwell on that. See, we tend to think about things that are constantly distracting us. Our minds are always distracted. But our hearts are always looking for things that will make us feel beautiful. We want lovely things in our lives because it gives us a sense of beauty. It gives us a sense of validation. It gives us a sense of worth. And so Paul says the cure for that, the cure for that kind of distraction is not to remove beauty from us. It's not to remove all beauties and all distractions because, again, we're unable to do that. We we don't have the capacity. We're too weak. That's the whole problem. He says the cure for that is to find a greater beauty that's going to overwhelm your mind and overwhelm your heart. I want you to dwell on that. He's clearly talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus is true. Jesus is noble. Jesus is just. He's right. Jesus is pure. Jesus is is lovely. Jesus is admirable. Jesus is excellent. Jesus is praiseworthy. Dwell on Christ. Jesus is the beauty, the greater beauty that will overwhelm the mind and overwhelm the heart in a way that will completely remove, allow us to walk away, ignore, not just ignore, but to walk away from our distractions in life. Jesus Christ All other beauties in our lives, as beautiful as they may be in our visible reality, they're like a whisper and they're gone. But if you dwell on the right things, if you dwell on Christ, he says, the peace of God, the peace of God will be with you. You will have the peace of God. How do you get the peace of God? How does the beauty of Christ overwhelm our fear? Paul is suffering But he mentions at the end of chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ. He's dwelling in his suffering on the beauty of Christ. I want to know Christ. I've got a good resume, but Jesus has the ultimately good resume, a cosmically beautiful resume. And I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship. I want the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. In other words, what Paul's saying is, I am suffering But when I'm suffering, I'm reflecting on the suffering of Christ. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, in that moment on the cross, Jesus Christ beaten and just pulverized to a pulp. His body is torn up. His soul is being torn apart because he says, my God, my center, my life, the center of my life has been torn from me. It's like his heart has been ripped out. And so he's saying, I'm falling apart. God is not present with me so that he can be present with his people. God is absent from me so that he can be absent with you. God has forsaken me so that he can remember you. Every time we look at the cross, we see the one person who had every reason to fall apart, to just Completely fall apart in anxiety. Why? Because the center that holds everything together in the world has been ripped apart and he's grown distant from the Father. 
Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. In the context of our fear, we have the presence of God. You can have the presence of God because on the cross, Jesus Christ lost the presence of God and so lost his peace. Lost his, and yet do you know, he was actually reciting My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was reciting Psalm 22. He was still dwelling on the Father. He was still dwelling on God. He was still reciting God, godly verses. He was still reciting and thinking and dwelling and reasoning and rationalizing in the context of despair and chaos and a lack of peace in his life. He was still thinking and pondering deeply and chewing on God even as he died. And do you know that he was praying? My God, my God, he was still looking to God. He was still praying to the Father, the Father who has abandoned him, and yet he's still reaching and praying to him. He was practicing the presence of God, even though he was absent. When we practice the presence of God, it feels sometimes like God is absent, but he's still present. Sometimes he's even more present in our brokenness. Jesus Christ was practicing the presence of God. He was absent so that we could be reconciled to God. Jesus Christ lost the peace of God so that we can have the peace that transcends all, under not just your understanding, all reason and rationale. We're isolated, you know. Paul's isolated. But Paul's looking to Jesus Christ who suffered the ultimate isolation, the cosmic isolation He had every reason to be anxious unto death. And yet he was still worshiping the Father. Look to the one who lived that life that we should live and yet died to pay the penalty for our lack of trust and faith in him. And you know what makes him beautiful? I mean, that is beautiful. What was Jesus dwelling on on the cross? He was dwelling on the Father. He was still dwelling in trusting the goodness and the righteousness and the honorable beauty of the Father, the kingliness of the Father. Yes, he was dwelling on that. But Psalm 22, at the end of that psalm, he talks about how all the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. He was dwelling and chewing on us. That one day we would have fellowship with the Father. That was his prayer before he died. That's what he was dwelling on. The thought of you coming to the Lord and dwelling on him and trusting on him for him. And that was true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable to see a new us. That his church coming together, worshiping the father was beautiful to him and it kept him going. And if the gospel kept him going, surely and enough, the gospel can keep you going. It could keep you going all the way into a new life. Are you worried about wealth and finances? He's a providing God. Are you worried about your guilt and your shame? He is a forgiving God. Are you alone and isolated? He is a father God. Are you broken and living in sin? He is a loving God. Trust in real truth. The love of the father. The love of our God. 
demonstrated on the cross of Christ as our evidence and proof. There is your worth. There is your sense of worth, your validation, your salvation. That's what Paul prayed for in the midst of his suffering. My prayer is that you will do the same in the midst of yours. Let's pray.